Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Hey, yo, Dev, what's going on? What's going on? How you been? Uh, been good. I've been booked and busy, but mm-hmm. also blessed. So much going on with data collection. Uh, f- four interviews to 100, which is like a really big deal. Mm, yeah. Um, so, you know, trying to push through, trying to get that. And although I did plan this vacation a long time ago, rewarding myself with a cruise. So it's kind of like pushing myself to get those hundred before I go on this seven day cruise. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, by the time this episode airs, you'll be on a nice beach, some Caribbean beach somewhere, hopefully on the ocean. Yes. yes. Kicking your feet up, relaxing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am going to try to do a little work though. I, I, I'll stop I want to, no, I want to read, do a little bit of reading and stuff like that. Maybe just some like reflecting, not like hardcore work, but you know, I'm trying to be the Beyonce of academia. She ain't taking no <laughs> Beyonce takes vacations now. <laughs> they were hard. I, hell, she probably be dancing. <laughs> well, go ahead and then if you're going to commit, then fully commit, then uh, no carbs, uh, no dairy, um, no meat. <laughs> I I, if this is not a physical challenge. Uh, I'm not doing that. I, I will be all the way broken down. I probably couldn't even produce any word. Yeah. I, <laughs> no carbs, no, just no nothing. I'm sorry. I think as academics, we need carbs, man. Yeah. Our brains just need, need that, need that to function. That's for sure. Yeah. And yeah, for those of you that don't know, we're definitely getting a hundred interviews. That is a lot like for qualitative work. So, so y'all keep motivating her, send her positive energies. Yeah. That's yeah. definitely a lot of interviews. So that's good. Yeah. But what's going on with you? No, and just waiting for the semester to wind down. And but it's interesting because as my semester is winding down, I'm getting like booked and busy for a lot of things in the summer, mm-hmm. like conferences. And I'm going to some just got picked to go to something for the school and like like a lot of random trips. So it's like, man, I'm like I was just trying to be I'm going to be busy, like trying to be productive with my work wise. But it's also like these other things just keep popping up, too. Mm-hmm. Um so I'll probably have a little bit more busier summer, at least the first half of the summer than I than I thought I would have. But okay. you know, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Cause sometimes I my summer, it's sometimes it's just me sitting on the couch. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> yeah, I got I gotta be busy this semester because this is a semester before my uh tenure. Cause next next semester I'll be next summer I'll be putting my tenure package together. So yeah. I gotta be productive this one. That is so crazy to even think about that. It feels like we were just in grad school. Time. I know. I mean, I'm still in there, but it's like, hey, did you graduate that long ago? I know. It creeps. Grad school flew by and this tenure thing's flying by too. I'm like, what? Next summer I'll be already getting that package together? Like, mm. woo! Oh, so, yeah. Fingers crossed for you. You got it. Yeah. But, um, all right, we got some old Lord news to get into. We do. All right, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old lore news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say...
Okay, so a few weeks ago, I highlighted a story about how in Florida, uh, voters had, you know, voted to restore the rights, the voting rights of ex-offenders and how the GOP uh, lawmakers were trying to find ways to keep them disenfranchised. And one way that they wanted to do that was by uh, saying that the any fines were also officially a part of the sentence. So if they hadn't paid the fines, even if they had been converted to like civil fines and not like criminal, you know, fines, they could not vote until it was done. And that, you know, that they're really expensive. It's a lot of money. And many people aren't able to pay those off in a timely fashion. Well, it is official. GOP lawmakers did officially vote on Wednesday um, to make ex-offenders pay any fines, any fees before they can actually vote. Mm-hmm. Undermines the intention of the law of what mm-hmm. they wanted. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Steve, this is, this is always, you know, this is a common thing we've seen in this country. Anytime there's a major form of progression, there's always something to keep us moving backwards. Um uh, so, yeah, hopefully, you know, even though they passed it, it won't have too much of an impact or there are resources there that can help people who were formerly incarcerated to get the right paperwork or whatever things they need paid so they can go smoothly, especially before this next election. Please, yeah. like, let's make sure we are on top of that, Florida. Let's uh, think about how many of those people would have tipped the governor's race. In yeah. the other direction. And that's what they're afraid of. And that's why, you know what, I, Ty, we might really have to do this BHD fundraising campaign as, mm-hmm. a, you know, raising money to help people pay off some of those fees. Because mm-hmm. if if we talk about like how difficult it is to get a job after you are released, like just think about all the obstacles that they have. This mm-hmm. is like a small victory for them. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we'll, what we'll do is target, look up some, um, I guess local, local things out there, organizations that are helping people do that and yeah, figure out a way we can chip in a little bit, yeah. especially before this next election. Yeah. That would be awesome. Okay. Speaking of being penalized or punished, a Ohio mom was shocked to learn that her two daughters were expelled from a Christian private elementary school at the end of the school year. So it was like two or three weeks left because she, the mom committed adultery and was not married while her children were born and because they had different fathers so they just they were just like look you weren't married when you had kids your kids got different daddies they gotta go in the middle of the school year or Mm. end of the school year that's wild it is so wild because it's kind of like the the children is April. You couldn't wait until the end of the year and you clearly Exactly. They knew this information beforehand, but then they tried to hit her with uh by saying that uh she violated uh the school's covenant by the children having different fathers and that she had signed some agreement before, you know, the students were enrolled that 
uh, signed a like morality clause or something like that. But she says she doesn't remember signing anything and that this is just all BS. So she wants to file, you know, a lawsuit, you know, go through litigation to try to get her children back in school. But As she uh, should. Mm-hmm. I don't think you want them there. Like you might want them to finish the school year, but that's not a place you want them there long term. Oh, yeah, of course not. Definitely not. That's wild. Yeah. Very wild. Uh, hurt, hurting the kids for no reason. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little politics. The latest, oh Lord, news is mm-hmm. the 2654th Democratic <laughs> just announced that they are entering the race, and that is none other than Joe Biden. <laughs> Uncle, Joe. Uncle Joe. Yeah. First of all, it's wild that. He just announced, but he's been leading in the polls. <laughs> it, it is wild. And it's crazy because, okay, before all of the, you know, sexual like assault or sexual like discomfort stuff uh, was released or about him. I feel like I would have been a little bit more excited uh, because I think I spoke in the past that I thought that he was a good person to just like go toe to toe with Trump. Mm -hmm, How he is framing himself like, you know, we want to unite the country, but, you know, you know, I can go toe to toe. And I don't know, it's just it's it's a lot more complicated now, given um, everything that's happened. Yeah. And, you know, there has been already critique articles coming out. Like, listen, I know everybody loved Joe, but I know a lot of y'all also were getting on Kamala and other folks about their past. And they like Joe pretty much wrote the 1994 crime bill, you know, that Bill Clinton put into place. He was a big contributor to that particular crime bill, which incarcerated and has a lot of the injustices we see from our criminal justice system stem from that bill. And he was a big proponent of that. So it's like, now, what's he going to, you know, what's going to be his narrative around that? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I ultimately think you should be like, yeah, I messed up. I'm sorry. You know, hopefully he don't try to talk his way through it. Like it was a right thing to do and all this other kind of stuff. Um, but but we shall see on that. But um, but. And a, a lot of people see him as like it's establishment and they're trying to move away. So it's kind of like he will actually have to come with a good platform to attract very progressive voters uh, because mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. people out here. They, they putting some stuff out here. I'm like, Ooh, you got my, you got my vote. You talking my language. Hey, I know. Okay. So I already know who you about to talk about. Uh-huh. And I'm talking about Elizabeth Warren with the yes, Lord news. Uh-huh. <laughs> like she is coming out here, not just with rhetoric, but with actual plans. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the $50,000 worth of forgiveness for uh, individuals who make less than 100000 or households, not individuals, households with less than $100,000, which, you know, I am going to comment. I don't benefit or I won't benefit at that point that it would be like implemented. Yeah. And it, that does hurt my feelings a little bit. <laughs> First generation college student, but I do know how much it would help so many people uh, who, you know, haven't hit that mark. So yeah, my feelings are hurt, but I like the policy and I like that there's like 
a mechanism to fund it. Like she's identified like mechanisms to fund it. So I'm just going to say, you know, think about like, let's do some intersectionality and consider the fact that, you know, you you might be doing a little bit for yourself, but you know, you, you, it's some intersectional stuff going on here. And hey, but I think you can be helped out in another way, okay. which is some of that income can be freed up with this loan forgiveness for 95% or loan forgiveness pro- uh, proposal. 95% of people who have loans yeah. can be forgiven. And so that money going to loans now can go back to your pocket. That's, that is true. <laughs> that is true. Um, but also she uh, recently, uh, imp- or a part of that policy was a uh, free, I think, public education, uh, mm-hmm. college education. Uh, she recently just talked about uh, implementing uh, incentive program for physicians uh, based on their mortality rates mm-hmm. for black mothers. Mm-hmm. Come on now. Come on now. Because mm-hmm. I told you that that's been like a major just like something that's been on my mind. So the fact that she's actually like coming out here with these policies, with these plans and like just she's speaking to me. Yeah. And so and she is to me. And this is the one thing I was watching. I wanted to see who was going to make that first move to stand out. Like who's going to make their policies known first? Who was going to like really do it? And um, I think she she definitely catching the attention now, catching that first wave. Because, yes, with the student loan thing, but also with looking at uh, black maternal deaths, man, like she she's setting herself apart right now. She really is. So it's just kind of like other people, they're going to have to come strong and it it cannot be just rhetoric because I'm a policy person. You're not going to sell me a dream. So somebody could be like, oh, you know, free college for all or loan forgiveness. But if you can't tell me how you're going to pay for this. And I think that it is a potentially sound way to fund it, because I think it was something like a one percent tax on like people with wealth over like. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, corporations in the hot, the very wealthy, mm-hmm. and her and her idea, her idea behind it is like, it makes sense. It's like, yo, we've had to use our tax tax dollars to bail out these banks and these corporations or what have you. When we're about to go into a financial crisis, like we had to use tax dollars to bail them out. So it's now it's their turn to bail us out. Mm-hmm. of student loans, and I ain't mad at that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> shoot. And the other policy that she recently released was universal child care mm-hmm. because they, you know, she, her platform feels like high quality, affordable child care should be available to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just kind of like, this is just, this is amazing policy. If we could get these types of things implemented, our country will be moving in a, the right direction. Yes. And, you know, you know, not to kind of toot our own horn a little bit, but, you know, Elizabeth Warren Warren is an academic, Mm -hmm. you know, so I think this explains some of her approach to this issue and her research as far as figuring out really how to get through it and make these things actually happen. I think that academic background plays plays a part. Mm -hmm. So to our listeners, what we're saying is a lot of people going to be talking. A lot of people are going to be, you know, trying to sell you on their policies and on them as a person. The devil is in the detail. Figure out 
what are the mechanisms people are going to use to try to fund some of the things that they're, you know, selling us on to get our votes? Ask yourself, is it realistic? And, you know, that's, that's, you know, I can't tell you how to vote, but I can tell you like strategies you should use to find somebody that's really going to represent your interests and actually get it done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I got I got one quick story that just popped up not too long ago that I thought was definitely old or newsworthy is um, Jordan Woods. You know, she was deal with the whole Tristan Thompson situation with Khloe Kardashian, whatever. Okay. Uh, but she just released recently released a statement saying that after the whole Tristan situation that she was bullied by the world. Mm-hmm. And um, and she said, this is her quote. I understood for the first time what it's like being a black woman in society. <laughs> Are you? Oh my! I just tossed. I just tossed myself off. <laughs> like uh, everybody's like, uh, you already a black woman. Like why? Why did it take all that for you to realize what it's like? I'm like, this girl is wilding right now. Right. Like the no force. Brainwashed by. Yeah. Oh man, that that is hilarious to me. But no words for it. But I just wanted to, just to say that because that's definitely old Lord news worthy. And, and Jordan is bugging. And also, I know brief. Briefly before you talked about on this podcast about ASMR, um, and I recently seen this clip going around about this black guy doing ASMR for white liberals. Hilarious. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so if our listeners, if you're out there looking for a good laugh, uh, definitely Google ASMR for white liberals. It is hilarious. I was cracking up the whole time. Yeah. So, okay. So ASMR, for those who don't know, is like these sounds that can be very relaxing to people. Not everyone. I think it's just like something related to like your like brain chemistry or something like that. Because I can listen to certain sounds and it just soothes me. It relaxes me. So I listen to ASMR videos. I'm, you know, I'm a proud ASMR. I'm not going to hide it anymore. Um, <laughs> but it was funny l- listening to this video because not only was it funny, but he's actually good at it. Like uh, there was one line that was like, you want to touch my hair? Oh, yeah. And he put his <laughs> like, hair on the mic. My, like that is an actual like good thing to do. Like that is. Yeah. So it's it's weird if, if you don't know what it is, like it might seem funny, but it was like funny, but also he's pretty good at this. So, yeah, that was good. I enjoyed it. Um, so, yeah, check it out. Uh, but, yeah, that's it for Old Lord News. But definitely going into our topic for today, we have a very special guest on, uh, Professor Jessica Pabon-Cologne, um, who is a professor at SUNY Newports, where I go. But she's on here to talk about uh, a book that she has recently written. And the book is actually the first academic study on women's participation within hip-hop graffiti art subculture. It's called Graffiti Girls Performing Feminism in the Hip Hop Diaspora. Mm-hmm. So it was an excellent book. And we had a great conversation of really talking about a population that we really don't talk about a lot. And they really don't come up in academic spaces for sure. Um, but talking about the graffiti world and hip hop graffiti in particular and how, you know, uh, women of color and women's participation in this world um how it works and what that subculture looks like. So it was a very fun conversation, to say the least. It was. It was. Mm-hmm. I think our listeners will in, enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. So without further ado, uh, let's get into this talk and we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. Today's interview focuses on a very unique exploration of a population that usually goes unnoticed, women and graffiti. 
Our guest for today is Dr. Jessica Pabon Cologne, an assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at SUNY New Paltz. She is here to discuss her book, Graffiti Girls, Performing Feminism in the Hip-Hop Diaspora. This is the first academic study on women's participation within hip-hop graffiti art subculture and is an interdisciplinary transnational feminist ethnography that examines how graffiti girls negotiate their place within a heterosexist male-dominated subculture. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for pronouncing my last name correctly. Nobody does that ever. (laughs) (laughs) Ty Ty is a professional. (laughs) He's good at what he does. (laughs) (laughs) Took a shot. Took a shot. Guess he did. Okay, that's good to hear. Um, so we're really excited to come talk to you about this and, and the work that you do for Great, sure. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thanks. Um, so one of the first things we like to do before we get into, you know, your work and all that good stuff is just for you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about yourself. Um, okay, so I am um, an assistant professor here at SUNY New Paltz. I teach in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department. Um, I tend to teach classes that, um, foreground women of color feminisms, um, and look at, um, those, those interventions through the lens of performance. So, um, you know, approaching, you know, how do we like make movement work move through the lessons of women of color? Um, And let's see, I have um, a four-year-old son who's a big part of my life and a big part of who I am. Um, We just got a dog. We're living here in the Hudson Valley. Um, Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, he's a surprise. We don't actually know. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. We rescued him from this organization in Puerto Rico called the the Sato Project. Um, And they it started off rescuing dogs from this place they called like dead dog beach or something like that um Mm. but his so and his name is batman (laughs) yeah you know he came named like that and my son was thrilled so um so yeah he's (laughs) they said he was a labrador mix the person who adopted his brother got a dna test that said they were lab that they were pitbull rottweiler so (laughs) which are my favorite kind of dogs but he absolutely does not look like that Mm. but yeah, so I'm just, you know, trying to do that academic mom thing. I am working on different projects that kind of move me away from graffiti um, while at the same time trying to, like, keep my, you know, one foot in the in the world of graffiti and street art, um, mm-hmm. you know, with the book and, and all that stuff. But really moving towards a sort of a um, more focus on Puerto Rico and, you know, Puerto Rican um, activism in a post-Hurricane Maria context, that kind of stuff. So trying to chill out with the family but also keep it moving with the the scholarship mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I hate yeah. that. and maybe we can talk about that a little bit more too in addition to talking about the book which we want people to buy uh, so what motivated you to pursue um you know your line of research related to uh graffiti art and maybe even your your new line of research mm-hmm. um so Okay, so the new project is about diasporican subjectivity. So, so like how I am who I am as a Puerto Rican who was born and raised in the diaspora with limited um, access to the culture on the archipelago, right? Um, so, which was actually the first project that I ever did in grad school. 
um, trying to think through like, oh, I'm a woman of color now, says the Academy. So what does that mean? And how do I fit in as a Puerto Rican who speaks very little Spanish and those kinds of things? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that project got derailed. <laughs> and um, and so this the graffiti project um, kind of came to the came to the front because of the kinds of classes I was taking. I had always had an interest in art and feminist art and what we call like feminist recovery projects of finding, you know, feminist art artists and art practices that have been eliminated from the canon because of sexism and misogyny. Um, and so I was in a class called Lesbian Art in America at the University of Arizona. And, you know, I had to do that final paper. And um, the, the prompt was, you know, or the thing that prompted me was that I thought to myself, huh, I grew up in the city of Dorchester, you know, in the city of Boston, surrounded by dudes who wrote graffiti, but I didn't know any that were women. So I started just thinking about the parallel between, you know, what women artists go through in the high art world and what women artists go through in, you know, what some people would refer to as like the low art world or like subcultural, right? Non-institutionalized art forms. Um, And so it was less that I was, you know, really interested in the graffiti because I grew up around it. And actually it was kind of just like this blase thing to me. Um, So it was the, you know, realizing, wow, I don't know any women and what the heck, like in all of the books that I've read about graffiti, it's the same woman over and over again. And this just can't, be true. So it was more about the absence of women um, in, you know, the the books on graffiti and the graffiti communities that I had access to or participated in. um, That really was the impetus behind this first book. And then of course the now second book, which was originally like the first project um, uh, really was like, okay, it's time now to deal with this. And, you know, Hurricane Maria and all the activism I've been doing around that really, like, kick-started um, that second project again. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, so for our listeners, we already, you know, threw the word around a couple of times when we say feminism. How would you, I guess, uh, define that for our mm-hmm. listeners who maybe have never, are not familiar with the term or maybe have heard it before, but not really sure exactly what yeah, it is? Yeah, so um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a different answer because um, I think, not I think, I know. <laughs> for me, it's, it's <laughs> less um, important to define what it is as if it stays like the same over time and space and, you know, through individual experiences. And so, um, and I learned this through writing my book and talking to these women who write graffiti that when we think about feminism, we should really think about it more like a verb rather than a noun. Um, so rather than Mm. thinking about what it is, we should just be asking what it does. So, Um, does your action um, inspire empowerment on an individual and collective basis? Does your action um, not tolerate or ignore difference, but actually engage with the tensions of difference in order to create solidarity? Um, Does your action or like your intention um, promote bodily autonomy and joy and pleasure and connectivity. 
Um, so, so yeah. So for me, I think like when we, um, think about feminism as a, like a liberation project, right. Um, along with other social movements, we get a much more, um, broad and I think appropriately complicated perspective on like what it is when we think about what it does. I know in your book, uh, Graffiti Girls, you talked about a concept of feminist masculinity. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I, I was I was kind of wondering what that concept really meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So feminist masculinity was, um, well, let me back up. The very first time I did an interview with Graffiti Girls, um, it was a group interview. It was, I think, 2004. And it was with some of the graffiti greats of the New York scene. So Lady Pink, which is um, the name that most people who are familiar with graffiti will know. She's like the token representative Ecuadorian um, uh, a woman who was writing, you know, on trains in the, in the early 80s. Um, so Lady Pink, Donia, also from New York. Um, Claw Money and Miss Seventeen were hanging out. We're all hanging out in a in a hotel room, and I'm asking them about like, you know, why do people do graffiti? What is you know, what's the purpose or whatever? And they were saying it's like a rite of passage, but then they, but they were talking about it as a rite of passage for men, right? And um, because we we were talking about it in the broader scope of a book that had just come came out that argued that cisgender, right? Like non-trans, um, boys participate in graffiti culture to practice their masculinity, um, their cisgender heterosexual masculinity. And so they were explaining it to me and I was like, yeah, but you write graffiti. And what, what, (laughs) you know, I was trying to like make sense of like how to hold those two things at the same time that they write Mm -hmm. it but they're talking about it as if it only belongs to like boys and men. And for the first few years of working on this project, I was very resistant to the notion that graffiti was a masculine act, right? That it was, that it could be described as a masculine characteristic. Um, And, and I realized that actually by um, rejecting this idea that graffiti is masculine. And so what I mean by this is like, you have to run, you have to jump, you have to be risky, you have to get dirty, you have to like, um, you know, go play trespass, (laughs) you know, you potentially are stealing things. It's all this like really, um, Mm -hmm. deviant, right. Behavior and deviance is not gendered feminine. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, It wasn't until I just really sat back and said, okay, um, how is the like gender binary influencing my strong rejection that, you know, graffiti is masculine? Because by saying that women who write graffiti um, are, or sorry, that men write, you know, boys and men write graffiti to like practice their masculinity and my, my, you know, desire to reject it and call it femininity, like something else, femininity, right? Um, my friend and colleague, Imani Kai Johnson has this concept of badass femininity, right? Um, but it wasn't, it's not, it's not feminine, right? It only becomes feminine if you stick to a Western gender binary where like woman 
equal, actually female equals woman equals feminine. And then on the other side, you've got male equals man equals masculine, right? Um, if you stick to that binary, um, then, then it does make sense to call it femininity. But what happens if we say, okay, masculinity is the primary way, is the primary gender expression in hip hop culture. And if we think about how hip hop culture was formed, women were there forming it too, right? So what is it, how would it change how we look at um, masculinity, especially from a feminist studies perspective where masculinity is usually like the toxic thing that we want to, right, um, critique and sort of eliminate. Um, what happens if we say it's not masculinity, it's the kind of masculinity um, that is toxic, right? Like a militaristic masculinity might be toxic, but what does masculinity look like when it's not for individual um, ownership? It's not used for dominance. It's not used to cut people down. It's not used to reinforce binaries. Um, what if instead these girls who write graffiti um, are you know, enacting their masculinity. They're jumping over fences and getting into fights with other graffiti writers. You know, it's not all, you know, beautiful lovingness in mm -hmm. this graffiti culture, so it's raw. Um, but what if we look at, like, the effects of that? The reason they're doing it is to claim space for themselves and behalf of other women. And in a patriarchal subculture, right, that means something. That's a that's a feminist act. So it's, it's a performance of characteristics that I reduced and, and like took away. I just removed the sort of the, the gestures, the movement, the, the language from that binary in order to understand what it meant when women did it on behalf of other women in a subculture where they are the numerical minority. Does that make more sense? Yeah, we'll, Oh, that that makes absolute sense. Okay. And and I like it. And I also like the way you connected it to uh, the work of other scholars. And we can definitely link them in the comments so that people can learn more about the concept. Badass yeah, yeah. feminism. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, you know. it's, it's so that came from um, Amani's article. It, she, it's called oh, it's Blues Women. She, she traces blues women to be girls. And she talks about the performance of badass femininity um, in a special issue of Women in Performance that I co-edited with my, um, uh, again, friend and colleague, Shantae uh, Paradigm Small. So we would definitely, like, that whole um, issue is about, like, a, a queer feminist perspective on different hip-hop articulations. Yeah. Mm, nice. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about the, hit, the like hip hop graffiti and stuff like that um, a little bit more in a little bit. But first, I just want to take a step back too because you know a lot of times people who maybe not be familiar with academia or even sometimes getting my students when you talk about things like you say you throw the word research out there. A lot of times people think like, oh, it's, it's super boring, you know. Or, I don't want to do this. Um, but I always like to highlight work like yours because it's really fascinating. Because again, you you able to sit down with over a hundred artists, right, in twenty three mm -hmm. countries. Um, mm -hmm. so that's like sounds like a really fun experience. Yeah. And you were doing research on a population where some people may view as an elusive population, right. right? These graffiti artists. So can you just talk a little bit about your, like your research and the process of gaining access and the experiences you had of just conducting the research? Yeah, absolutely. No, I had the most fun. I mean, <laughs> I was at it for, <laughs> it took 15 years to get this out. Right. Um, and part of that was cause 
my experience in the beginning when it was just, you know, it was a master's, it, it was my master's thesis. It was like a end of class paper that turned into a master's thesis because it got everybody hype about it, but also because I hadn't finished my work. Right. Like the paper wasn't enough. The thesis wasn't enough. I knew there was a lot more work that needed to be done. So getting into. okay, when I asked my friends, okay, I'm writing a paper about women who write graffiti. You know, can you like connect me with any? It was like there aren't any worth talking to. Right. And I was Mm -hmm. like okay, I kind of just like took it how it is. And I, I've talked about this before. Like I did a Ted talk and I talked about it because there was one girl or a person that I thought was a girl in Boston named Ren one, who I only thought it was a girl because she signified her gender with a heart. So her O was a heart. And I was like, huh, I bet that's a girl, you know? And, (laughs) um, and so sometimes they choose to signify their gender difference. Other times they don't. But mm-hmm. I was told that, you know, she, she slept around, that she was just a, a like a wannabe, a jock, um, you know, like sweating the, the graffiti writers wanting to date them, et cetera, et cetera. I was told all these lies, these facts, but I believed them at the time because I didn't know better. Um, and so I actually to get in, t- so I just, I was like, fine, I don't need to talk to her, whatever. And I went online. There used to be a really active and popular website called Art Crimes. And, you know, for your listeners that are younger, (laughs) you have to remember, like, the Internet was not what it is today. You know, the, the first girls that I got in touch with sent me physical responses to questions like written out. You know, there was no, you know, we did it. It wasn't email. They didn't email me photos. They sent me like print copies in the regular mail. Um, But there was this one website that people use art crimes. And so I posted a little call for participation. And the first one was totally awkward and ridiculous. It was too academic. It was like, I'm doing a research project on. And actually the original project, I was looking for lesbian graffiti writers, remember, because it was like in that class. Uh, But that Mm -hmm. turned out to be doubly difficult because I was asking them to come out as lesbian and as women, which is not (laughs) happening. Um, but so I didn't get any responses and, you know, consulted my professors and they were like, well, like think about the community you're talking to. Why are you like, just be yourself. And I was like, okay. So the next post I did, I was like, what's up? This is Jess, you know, (laughs) please come talk to me about graffiti. I'm looking for dope girls that write graph, blah, 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 blah. And that one, um, was responded to. So that's great. And, Mm. uh, the person that changed it all was miss 17. She responded to me. She thought I was a cop and she spent at least, I would say like six months sort of investigating me. And we would chat and, you know, at the time it was AIM, AOL Instant Messenger. I was Mm, (laughs) P-feminist. So funny. It was like a, they generated it. So I have all these, you know, and I, and I remember this because I kept all the transcriptions from our, from our chats, but it was, she was very much feeling me out. And uh, that's the thing about this subculture, right? It's like, or at least when I started it. Now we live in the age of social media and the anonymity thing is a much different beast now. People actually put their names and 
location and stuff next to their graffiti on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm just like, Mm. what are you doing? Um, (laughs) But so it was a very slow process because you have to get them to, to trust you. And also the women in the scene, you know, they came from different places. Like some of them are like, I don't want to participate in that because it just, it like ghettoizes me as a woman that I can only be in a book with other women. Some of them were like, had been burnt by previous ethnographers, like other people that said that they wanted to talk about them. And then it came out in a sideways way or they were ignored or they weren't talked to at all. Like, um, there's this book called, um, graffiti women, and uh, Nicholas Gans, and you know what I heard was he like made this book and he didn't talk to anybody, and they they don't like that, you know they they very yeah. much want control about uh, of how they are represented, and um, and so I had to navigate all those like prior experiences that they had. They were none of them. They were like I don't want to answer boring questions, you know. Um, it was it, it was very interesting. It took a long time, but it was a snowball effect. So once Seventeen trusted me, then she connected me because she was she's a king. So she's very well connected in the scene. People know her all over the world. Um, mm. And it was like, uh, okay, you know, because traveling on a budget, you know, I was a grad student, and yeah. even as a even as a professor, you know, it's like, okay, there's a yeah. conference in this city, so I would contact 17 and be like who do you know in this city and that's sort of how it would go and then I would go stay with them and they would bring me around I mean it was I had I did not go to all of those countries right (laughs) um the digital is so much a part of this project because even Mm -hmm. if I did go to their city and their country it doesn't mean they want to meet with me you know um, maybe yeah. they don't want me to see their face. So, so they True. feel, you know, for some writers, it's much more comfortable to do like an email exchange. Then we become Facebook friends. Then we're, you know, um, you build relationships, actually much more intimate relationships over, you know, sh- social media, because with a, like a kind of a typical interview, you meet up with them in the city, you have your hour and that might be it. Right. But when I'm connected Mm. with them over Instagram or Facebook, I see their kids, they see my life and they, and I've, I have specific writers who connected with me, but said no to the project until a lot of time passed and they saw the kind of person I was. Because when you Mm. say, you know, I'm writing a book about feminism and graffiti, it's like, they're not interested in feminism or they weren't right. Things are changing Mm -hmm. or they weren't interested in what they thought feminism was right. This sort of (sighs) privileged white woman, global Northern imperialist settler colonialists, right. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, hetero um, institution that they just, they just didn't want anything to do with that. Um, And so you know, part of what I did through the book, again, by just focusing on a ver- on feminism as a verb, was say, uh, you may not identify as a feminist, but the effects of the things that you're doing are, are feminist, right, in the way that mm-hmm. I define it. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so it was definitely is it, I, I think your question was about like how you, you know, sort of got into it, the ways you do your research, it's all, yeah. it's, I just sort of, um, it's a mashup. 
right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's hip hopography, right? It's queer ethnography, it's feminist ethnography. And a lot of the times it's just me being who I am because Mm -hmm. these girls, you know, just like me, we, we all value realness and, um, not in some kind of like, you know, authenticity debate kind of way, just honesty and direct communication and, um, you know, that kind of relating where we're not like beating around the bush. I'm not hiding anything from them. I was very transparent, you know, with them about what I was going to do. I sent them what I wrote about them to make sure, you know, it was accurate. If they disagreed, we would talk about it, but I would say, that's my theory. I'm sorry that you don't agree with it. Um, but my job as, uh, you know, as the, the analyst, right. Of this subculture mm-hmm. is to like look broader and think deeper about your everyday life. So I'm going to have a different mm-hmm. perspective on it, you know, and that's okay. Yeah. The, the, the forward to my book is like the polar opposite of my argument. <laughs> You know, and I said, let's, we have to keep it in there because 17 is like, you know, she, she firmly believes that gender doesn't matter. And my argument is that it does. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's Mm -hmm. just coming from a different perspective. And I thought it was important to put her perspective right up top and, and leave it the way it was. That's that's really powerful. And I can definitely relate to your ethnography struggles Uh, (laughs) that happened to me. And like you said, it took upwards of like seven or eight months. Um, And even when I started, one of the participants, you know, asked me like, who you working for? Who sent right. you? Who right. sent you? Right. It, so it's funny. I, I've had that experience as well. But, you well, know, because that's protected. I mean, you have to understand it. Right. Because it's like we even if we don't as academics, um, you know, I am not living the high life here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, just because I publish a book does not mean I'm like all of a sudden rolling around and like, you know, piles of cash. But there is you do accrue capital, certain kinds of capital when you publish a book about other people's lives. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to me that they want to protect that. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And you have to just, you know, kind of spread the privilege when you can. Like when I'm doing a talk in a city where one of the girls is, I try to, you know, have the organizer invite them, pay them. And so instead of me doing a lecture, it's like a conversation. Mm-hmm really at the end of the day, it's about getting these girls, you know, putting their work forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. And when you're a genuine person, people, they, they eventually come around because they see right. who you are. Right. So you actually mentioned uh, a TED talk that you had done and you talked about a conversation that you, you know, had with someone where they were like, there's no one like worth talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit more because I know in your introduction, you talked about within the subculture of like the graffiti art world, that there's a parallel between the heterosexism and fine art mm-hmm. and the graffiti art world. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to, you know, do you think the the conversation about there's no one worth talking to like right. is that some of the parallel that you were talking about can you talk a little bit more about like what are the factors or or what are the experience of like heterosexism within that subculture yeah so i will say that you know the fine art the critique of heterosexism in the fine art world that 
motivated my stuff was the performance art of the Gorilla Girls. And if, and if you or your listeners don't know who the Gorilla Girls are, you got to just look them up. <laughs> and they, did, they do a ton of like um, uh, work around galleries, around museums, around, um, you know, biennials, all the sort of institutional support um, that artists receive and the ways that all of that is gendered and raced. Right. So they have like I have in my office right now a huge poster that says the advantages of being a woman artist working without the pressure of success, not having to be in shows with men, having an escape from the art world and your four freelance jobs, knowing your career might pick up after you're 80. You know, so it's like, you know, this very sarcastic, you know, not having to worry about being included in art history. Like it's very sarcastic. Right. But they'll also do, you know, the Met has only had this many solo shows by women, this many sh- solo shows by people of color compared to, right? So it's, it is not hard to find um, not just heterosexism, right? But like white supremacist heterosexism in the fine art world. Um, that's easy. Subculture is a little bit harder because we have this idea in our mind that because it's a subculture, it's, it's also countercultural in particular ways, right? Like, because it's not mainstream culture, it automatically is sort of like rebellious to mainstream culture. And this is in, in my, um, my research has shown the opposite. And also I'll give you an example. Um, I won't say her name, um, but a, a writer that I interviewed um, in Chile, um, in Santiago, I think it was in 2012. She, she writes wild style. She's, she's just one, she's probably one of the most, um, prolific and, uh, talented, like skilled with a spray can wild star, wild style graffiti girls. I met doing my research and I asked her, you know, can you like remember a time when you were treated differently because you were a girl or, you know, something like that. And she said, no, that's never happened to me. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Sometimes people answer your question. You're just like, I know that that's not true, but it's not my job to like argue with you on your perception of the world. Then like a half an hour, 40 minutes later into the interview, she says in the answer to a totally different question. I think I asked her maybe what, like the most dangerous place, you know, she, she had, um, gotten up, uh, was, and she was describing, um, these, oh my God, I always forget what they're called. Flood channel. Is that a thing? It's (laughs) where, you know, like it's kind of like an indent and then it's, it's concrete lines. So like if it rains a lot, the water goes through. I feel like there's another aqueduct. Is that the word? Oh God. I don't know. Anyway, so it's like (laughs) some kind of space like that. Um, and so she told one of her friends, she's the only girl in her crew. And she told one of, uh, well, in this particular crew, she has another crew that's all girls, but in the crew where she's the only girl, she told them she was going to go hit it up. And they were like, no, you can't go there. It's too dangerous. Um, and she just kind of, she just like shrugged, you know, when she was explaining it to me, she said, you know, I didn't even listen. I just called up this other writer who is a girl and said, Hey, you want to go out of that? And she said, yes. And they went and they did it together. And I said, okay, (laughs) let's think about this. Right. So you didn't put, you didn't, you know, you didn't put any weight or like think about 
how they were like, no, you're not going there. You know, this kind of like um, paternal, you know, taking care of because she's the girl in the crew kind of thing of like, you can't go there. It's too dangerous. Never mind the fact that she's been writing maybe longer than most of them. Right. Um, and she didn't identify that as sexist. Right. Um, and, uh, and so we sort of like talked about it and she goes, Oh yeah. And I was like, don't you think there's something to the fact that they told you no. So you went and called another girl right? Knowing that you would get the support that you weren't getting from them, from her. Like that's the kind of like feminism in action I'm talking about amongst graffiti girls. It's like, they will all have an experience like that, but rather than, um, letting it stop them, graffiti girls, uh, sort of come at it head on. Right. It's like, it's a very, you know, this is the rebellious part. It's like rebelling against sexism and the heterosexism. So when I was writing about it, I had this moment where I was like, should I just call it sexism and then say heterosexism? Should I, you know, how do I, um, some, theorists, right? And I think I would agree with them would say that like sexism is always heterosexism because the heterosex, you know, hetero, um, like the, the heterosexual, homosexual, like the, that binary influences, right? The, the, the gender binary that influences sexism, right? Um, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to kind of like mark that they were connected, but that it wasn't always like directly that one thing. It's like when we talk about with my students, when I try to explain to them the difference between like racialized sexism and sexualized racism, you know, that there's that, that of course they are related, but it's kind of about the, the, the emphasis or sort of the, the impetus. I don't know if I'm just like explaining this correct, but so when, so when a, a graffiti girl starts and they call her a dyke, that's not just sexism, right? That's heterosexism. That is a, 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 a supposed to be right. A derogatory term that means, you know, well, she's too masculine or too good to be straight. So obviously she has to be queer because she's so good at this masculinity, right? That's heterosexism. Um, when it is, you're a new graffiti writer and the thing that they're, that they say about you is that you're promiscuous. That's sexism, right? Very obviously sexism. Not that there isn't heterosexism in it as a structure, right? That we live in that kind of society, but that, the, that the sort of the motive behind it and the, the thing that's sort of at the front um, of the accusation and the rumor mill is, is generated a little bit differently. Um, and I had girls that, you know, cause the project began with looking for lesbian graffiti writers and it's not that I didn't find any, and it's not that I didn't find writers who identified as pan and writers who identified as, um, bi. the majority of them identified as the ones that were queer identified as, as bi. Um, but they didn't want it in the book. Right. And, and, and that goes back to the sort of protecting the self-protection bit. Like you're already getting rape threats. You're already being harassed. You're already like experiencing all these things just because of your gender. Add on top of that, your sexuality. 
and it's going to be like the danger quotient, right? Increases. One, um, you know, even just for me, somebody that's not familiar with graffiti art all the way, you know, I mean, of course I've seen it around, know what it is, but really don't know all the kind of intricacies and details of what this world is like. And so I know you, focus particularly on hip-hop graffiti mm-hmm. art. Um, so what are the characteristics of hip-hop mm-hmm. graffiti art and what kind of distinguishes it from, I guess, other times of, other types of graffiti and street art and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, it's all about the name. So um, okay. I focus on hip-hop. Okay, there are a bajillion kinds of graffiti, right? Literally any kind of, like, inscription on a surface. So you can scratch. There's scratchy <laughs> Uh There's, you know, oh. uh, what is it called? Latrilinalia, I think is the word. Bath. That's a fancy word for bathroom graffiti. Um, they're, they're all just kinds of, just any kind of, like, ancient graffiti. We're talking Pompeii, right? Um, the kind that I focus on is the kind that emerged um related to the emergence of hip hop culture. And it does have specific aesthetic characteristics. The first one is that it's about the tag name. So a street artist who's, um, you know, putting up um, predominantly imagery, right? No matter what kind of, you know, photorealistic or, you know, surreal, whatever, however you describe that image, that's, probably not going to be hip hop graffiti art. Where is the, where is the name of the artist? Hip hop graffiti art is about proclaiming your presence and you can't proclaim your presence if you don't necessarily have a name. Some graffiti writers use a a symbol, but they will also tag like their crew name or there will be some kind of, um, uh, you know, letter (laughs) action going on. Um, There are different kinds and depending on where you go. So this was one of the really hard things about writing the book because the more writers that I spoke to in different countries, the kind of rules change about what is qualified, what qualifies as hip hop graffiti. If you were talking to a New York writer, they will tell you that hip hop graffiti, well, they probably will tell you that graffiti isn't hip hop and that's a whole nother conversation, (laughs) but they may Mm -hmm. also say something like it's wild style. If it's not wild style and if it's not letters, then it's not graffiti, right? If it's like Mm -hmm. this beautiful mural, that's not graffiti. That's a mural. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. There are much more, there are stricter rules, but when you move towards Latin America, for example, the muraling is understood as graffiti. And it's, it's incorporated much more. And I think that's one of the reasons that women tend to be involved in it at a higher rate um, in Latin America than in other, than in, the, in Latin America versus like the United States versus Canada versus um, Europe, because the style allows for more muraling, which for whatever reason allows for the aesthetics that women can, that some women contribute. Right. Um, so I have this whole piece in the book where I'm actually at a, at a, um, an all girl jam in London called Femme Fierce, where I'm talking to them about like, why are you writing letters and why are letters important? And how did you start writing letters? And all of them said, um, I write letters because people think that girls can't write letters, right? Mm -hmm. That girls are going to do like hearts and flowers and like, you know, pretty faces and like soft, you know, characteristics, like all that really gendered feminine 
imagery. And so they want to subvert that expectation um, and represent for the letters. So I try to, at the on the one hand, hold these um, hip hop culture, cultural aesthetics like um, collect, you know, collectivity. So that's not necessarily something you can um, visualize except for, right. If I get up and I write Jess on the wall, but I also want to represent my crew, I'm going to put my crew name under my name. Right. So you can see that sort of community oriented, right. Ethic. Um, and you can relate that to like, if you ever go to like, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, not like a Nas, um, concert, Jay-Z, you know, show, they don't ever show up just them. Right. They always have their crew with them. Right. There's, that's mm-hmm. how you just, you roll with your crew. That's how it is. It's the same way in graffiti. So there's that. I talk about polyrhythm, but it's a visual polyrhythm. So if you think about, um, you know, Afro-Caribbean, as, like musical aesthetics, how would we visualize that? Hip hop graffiti mm-hmm. has layers. It uses different textures, different colors, right? There's always a lot going on at the same time. Um, mm. so I focus on those and the, the practice of, you know, self-naming, right? Like thinking about, uh, alternative, um, you know, like, uh, alternative naming practices that, um, are, that are empowering, right. That make you feel like a particular way, right. I'm not invisible. I am important. This is my name. This is my alternative name, that kind of stuff. So I try to keep those basic Afro-Caribbean aesthetic considerations and watch how they moved um, when I moved and when the graffiti subculture moved. And I tried to think about that in relationship to when graffiti emerged somewhere, right? And how it emerged. And um, what I found was that no matter the country, most of the no matter the country, the girls that I spoke with, even if they didn't identify themselves as hip hop heads, would say things like, I listen to Wu-Tang. I listen to, you know, Public Enemy. I listen to, right, like these things. I watched mm-hmm. the film about Basquiat. I read Subway Art and I read Spray Can Art and I know who Martha Cooper is and I know who Lady Pink is and I know who Dondi is. And that's all New York based, like that's the canon of graffiti, right? So how they sort of are exposed to it, or they'll say, you know, I started off as a, as a B-boy, as a break dancer, but now I'm a graffiti writer because I like it better or I do both. Mm. Right. So it was about like how they painted it, the community that they, you know, kept, um, and the kind of, the ways that hip hop sort of was part of their life and they didn't even right realize it i write about 17 mm-hmm. like she says that she's not a hip-hop head but she also says that she listens to witching when she's painting and if you look at the aesthetic the, the way that she paints she's not interested in her graffiti being like pretty it's about it being raw it's about it being hard-hitting and that's wu-tang right yeah. <laughs> so just thinking about the relationships between those two things and you can't you know, that helped me sort of cordon off and keep, keep my, my, my boundaries of like, this is hip hop graffiti and that is not, it was, but it was, it was difficult for sure. Yeah. Mm. 
You know what? One thing I noticed um, as as you were talking is you often use the term girls. And I I noticed in your book also that you talked about the ages of some of the women and, you know, how, you know, some of them were in their 30s. Can you just talk about that lingo a little bit more? Why girls? Um, And I also noticed some other things like uh, the art of getting over. And, you know, there was just some other lingo. So can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this was another thing that I had to kind of like grow out of um, was the the heterosexism in the language itself. So I was just ta- I was struggling as I was um, answering the last question because you know to the sort of lay person you would say break dancer, to a break dancer you would say b boy, to a feminist why would you say b boy if it's a b girl? Right. Um, or so there are all these sort of like linguistic, um, uh, whoo, thing, like tensions. <laughs> so for example, I called Miss 17 a king, right? I would never call her queen. Never, ever. Right. That would be an insult. Mm. <laughs> and then when I first started writing this stuff, um, I was like, that's, cr-, you know, I was like, maybe we should call them monarchs. I was trying to think of gender, like, neutral, I guess, terminology that would confer the same status. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the art of, I'll start with the art of getting over first. So the art of getting over is actually a book that came out, I think in 99 by a dude named Steve Powers, um, coming out of the New York scene. And that's just the, you know, that's the, sort of like an affectionate way of referring to graffiti. Um, so you can say like spray can art, um, aerosol art, graffiti. Um, uh, but I, I think, I mean, I don't really hear people saying like the art of getting over all the time, but the idea is you're getting over on like the cops, right? Like you're putting something up illegally and you're getting away with it. It's the art of getting over, right? Being really good at subverting a system that's trying to discipline you. And, um, my dissertation actually was called the art of getting ovaries, (laughs) um, not to be all like cis sexist. Um, but because one of the earlier pieces that I was exposed to was painted by a writer named Donia, um, one of the girls that I was talking about earlier from New York. And she, when that book came out, she was like friends with that guy. And she, she, told me, you know, I did that piece. She did a piece with her name, Donia, and then stops says the art of getting ovaries. And, um, she said, you know, it was, it was a, like a clapback basically at the fact that he published a book about a group of writers where women were part active participants and just like did not write about them. Right. So I use I use her piece as a way to frame like this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about performing feminism. When she threw up her name um, and she threw up the art of getting ovaries, it was a like a a, a reperformance of her visit of her um, like erasure. Right. So it's not just the art of getting over it's the art of getting ovaries. It signified her difference. Um you know, by calling upon the ovaries. Right. And, um, and, and so when a a person who walks by, they can't say like, Oh, that was a guy, right. They would know that a woman did it. Right. Cause she signified herself in it. So I, I don't 
really talk that much in the book about it, except for to use it as a really early example of one of the ways that um, women have to navigate this space where even, um, you know, amongst their friends, they are sort of being left out, right? And marginalized and, and valued less, right? You can't have space on that wall. You can't really have space in this book, right? Those kinds of things. And I call them girls because um, it's like a hat tip to the fact that graffiti, you know, is a youth subculture. The older you get, the more you have to lose. So it makes sense that um, people write, start writing when they're young. This is not to say that people stop writing. When I went to Brazil, I met a, a, a woman in her 50s who's not a graf- hip hop graffiti writer. Um, she did... Um, like an early version of Pisha Sal, which is a particular, like, it's kind of like tagging. Um, that's, that's specific to Brazil. She's a lawyer. She's a mom. She was, you know, in her fifties and she was still writing. Like she told me a story about like the weekend before when she was out and, you know, and I was like, what is happening? So, um, (laughs) it's, it's a hat tip to, it's a youth culture, um, for girls growing up has different resonances than for boys. Right. And again, I, I talk about this stuff, but I don't want to reaffirm a gender binary, but there is a difference in a patriarchal culture between like what happens when you become a woman and what happens when you become a man, you know, there are scare quotes around all this stuff in terms of like responsibility, like girls will be girls is not a thing that people say. Right. Boys will be boys, that kind of thing. So I had to, to that, like those dynamics of like refusing to grow up and become like a proper woman. Right. Um, but it's also uh, a way of bringing in the riot girl and the hip hop like mush <laughs> that is right. A lot of the girls that I spoke mm-hmm. with had, liked punk, like liked rag girl music, liked punk music. There's a much more um, crossover between punk subculture and hip hop than people I think imagine, right? Because of the way that mainstream hip hop and sort of, I don't know that punk can be, can punk be mainstream? I don't know. That's not my wheelhouse, but like, you know, sort of uh, more well-known punk, right? Like the way that those circulate, punk is associated with whiteness, which is why now we have this like, you know, Afropunk movement thing to be like, uh, no, that was never the case. Um, and mm. right. Hip hop is associated with blackness. And so I'm trying to f- figure out a way linguistically to refer to them that, um, shows the complexity, right? Like, you know, in hip hop, that's my girl. Right. And the Z mm. is the like little sort of hip hop flair there. And the double R is the, is the riot girl. So it's just kind of participating mm. in this, um, feminist, you know, move in, in, you know, semiotics and language that, you know, we're going to change the way something is spelled to signify something different. So you can think about like women spelled with a Y or right. Like those kinds of, instead of history, we talk about herstory, you know, because we want to just signify something different. Um, and it's in, in no way meant to like infantilize them um, because they are women. I mean, some of them are older than me, right? (laughs) They're like my, you know, um, they're my seniors. Uh, But, uh, and more of a, like an embracing of um, that rebellious 
liberatory spirit that we have when we're children, when we, that we have when we're teenagers and like coming into ourselves that is like beaten out of us by the time we become adults. Right. It's, it's all of that mixed up together in this one little, you know, five letter word. No, yeah, no, I'm glad you took the opportunity to explain that because I'm sure people will look at the title and be like, oh, why is it why is it spelled mm-hmm. that way? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, so that was good. Um, but no, that's all the questions we had. Is there anything else that maybe that, you know, we maybe didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about with, uh, with your work? Mm-hmm. And maybe even particularly uh, the Feminist for Puerto Rico campaign, maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can talk about that because yeah. um, I'm actually cool. about to drop some um, <laughs> some canvas bags this is the next iteration of that. I'm trying to get them out mm. for, for Women's History Month. But so Feminist for Puerto Rico um, is part of the next project, right? Um, which is, again, it's about just trying to understand um, what it is to be diasporic Puerto Rican and um, what that has to do in terms of like race, because I'm white passing um, language, because I speak predominantly English, those kinds of things. And I was writing and like working through this project and then Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. Um, and so that was in September of 2017. And in between September and November, I had, um, I was just, um, gosh, what's a good word for it? Disappointed isn't strong enough. Uh, I was, uh, it was like rage sadness that, um, (laughs) that, 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 feminist movement that nobody in the sort of widespread feminist movement was talking about the crisis in Puerto Rico as a feminist issue. And I was like, what, like, what's the disjuncture here? What is going on? Like, what is, this is just another example of white women failing women of color. Like this is, I I don't understand. You don't even have to work hard to understand how, you know, not having power, not having food and not having water might be a feminist issue. Right. Um, and so I was on the, ver- it was like, it was my birthday actually, it was November 12th and the, the national women's studies association conference was coming up and I had four days to put something together. I was like, if there's any place that is a good place to launch a campaign where I'm like demanding that feminists, right. Like step up. Um, for Puerto Rican relief efforts, it is this conference. So I spent my, my, you know, my partner, my husband's like, what do you want to do on your birthday? And I was like, I want to (laughs) work. So I'm like (laughs) hiding in, you know, in the room, like designing a logo, putting together some materials. Here's some information. Here's some resources, getting t-shirts designed, like the whole jam. I mean, I spent my whole birthday doing what I, I mean, it was awesome. I had a, I had a great time doing something important, but, um, and then we went to the, I went to the conference. I got people on board and we stood outside of, um, I believe it was, uh, Angela Davis. Um, you know, the, the first like keynote, we stood outside and when it let out, we all had the feminist for Puerto Rico t-shirts on and I was handing out information and just trying to get people to a get involved, (laughs) b Mm -hmm. um, raise money. At the time there was a thing called scholars for Puerto Rico um, that had a goal of 10,000. It far surpassed that, but that was one of the things and um, C get people to go to the unity March for Puerto Rico, which was in DC the next day. And we were in Baltimore. So that was how it started. And then it became a visibility and fundraising campaign that is still like that. I still do. Um, It's, you know, it's, 
basically just me um, building a network of allies, you know, allies and accomplices and other diasporican um, feminist scholar activists who want to participate in something. My end goal is to um, somehow <laughs> create um, like a, a, a mass amount of money so we can actually buy land on the island because that's one of the the, the most um, distressing things right now is that, you know, as Puerto Rico just continues to plummet um, economically and, uh, you know, socially, politically, all that stuff, um, land is being grabbed, right, by people who are not Puerto Rican and they're buying it for mm. extremely low prices and then they're putting up these like extravagant hotels and right, like just making the, the archipelago and like the main Island of Puerto Rico, un like inhabitable, uninhabitable, not livable <laughs> for, for, for Puerto Ricans, right? Like Puerto Rico, Puerto Ricans. And, um, and so I think that like it, what, what would happen if we could just buy some land, put it in a land trust with an organization that's working on decolonization. That's my, that's my like dream and goal. And in the meantime, mm -hmm. I'm just like selling t-shirts and canvas bags. And I give all the proceeds to that to an organization called SEPA. It's the Center for Embodied Pedagogy and Action um, on the island. And she's uh, the, the woman in charge of that, Melissa Rosario, um, is doing all this really cool decolonial work, right? Like teaching people how to use the resources provided by the land to um, live their life, right? And and there's there are all different kinds of um, organizations and programs all across um, uh, the archipelago that are like teaching sustainable farming and teaching, you know, because when you when you don't have water and all of your, you know, the, your, all of their crops, it used to be a culture of sustainable farming, right? That you like, you farmed what you ate and you traded and that's how it was. And then it turned into mm -hmm. this whole field is going to be sugar and this whole field is going to be right coffee or whatever it is. Um, and that it actually ruins the soil and then people don't know how to do it. And so when, you know, you can't import any food except from the United States and no ships can come in and right in a crisis situation, um, if nobody knows how to grow anything, how are people eating? So it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of work happening in Puerto Rico right now that needs our support and you don't have to be rich to do that work. Right. Um, and so I'm just like literally one T-shirt and one bag at a time trying to funnel money down, um, uh, down to Melissa, because I believe in the in the really good work she's doing. You know, she's, she's taken the decolonization project. She's like an academic in exile. You know, she has her Ph.D. She chose to repatriate um, and work with the people there. Right. And, and, and commit her life, um, uh, to doing that, to doing that really good work. And so the, the least that I can do with feminists for Puerto Rico is like support those efforts. So I have an Etsy page. It's called Dia uh, Despieta, uh, diaspora. So let's see, is that what it's called? <laughs> I have to look it up. Um, that's where I sell the t-shirts and that's where I'll be selling the, um, I'll send you the link and then you can maybe link it on your thing. Um, that's where I sell the t-shirts, although I sold out of those and that's where I'll be selling the bags. And I'll just tell you really quickly about the bags. They're canvas bags. Um, it's going to have the feminist for Puerto Rico logo on it, but have you seen those, um, uh, 
those t-shirts that say like Audrey and Gloria and Belle. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I, no, I haven't seen They're it. like feminist. If you just Google like feminist name t-shirt, <laughs> it'll come up. But it's um, so you have t-shirts for like white women and you have t-shirts for black feminists, which is where the idea well, that's where I got my T-shirt anyway, like a hundred years ago. It feels like at this point, um, it's a it's a T-shirt of Black feminists, and we don't have one for Latinas, and specifically, we don't have one for Puerto Rican women. So what I did was I reached out to my feminist for Puerto Rico network, and I said, I want to make a canvas bag, and I want to have it with our like liberation struggle warriors, right? The like. <laughs> the women who like shot at senators and tried to blow things up and Harvard, you know, like I want those women, the young Lords, I want their names on a bag. And so it has, um, 10 names. And the last two names are Sonia Sotomayor. So not exactly blowing things up, but also the first Puerto Rican woman to be, uh, right. Uh, a justice. Mm-hmm. And, um, Alexandria or Ocasio-Cortez because she's amazing and she needs mm-hmm. to be on our back. <laughs> So that's, that's what I'm up to now. Just trying to get these bags churned out um, in time for, for Women's History Month. Awesome. We will definitely yeah. link all of those uh, things in our description so that people can support the cause and you Thank know, you. all of that. Yeah. yeah, I really appreciate that. This has been such a fun conversation. <laughs> it has. I, I yeah. definitely enjoyed yeah, it. Right. Yeah. That's good. Thank you so much. Yeah, where can um where can people find you? You know, social media, website, yeah, stuff like so, that. Yeah, um, so my my website is just my name, jessicapabone.com. Um, I'm on Twitter too much <laughs> uh, at just Jess underscore PhD, um, and those are the two primary places. Yeah. Nice, nice. We'll be sure to link those too, so people can follow you and, and follow yes, your work. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Yo, yo Dad. So, what you think about Jess? And her work. I thought it was fun. Yeah, I thought it was fun. It was a really interesting conversation. Her work is interesting. You know, the mm-hmm. Graffiti Girls work as well as, you know, her upcoming project uh, about, you know, feminists for Puerto Rico and, you know, the response after uh, Maria. So I, I thought her work was just very interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, you know, it's always one of the cool things about talking to people like Jess and the kind of work they do is the fact that, you know, it's really interesting. Like I said in the interview, you know, when people think about research, sometimes they think it's just like, oh, boring, number crunching, writing data. But like when you're doing like especially like this ethnographic, qualitative kind of research, you know, you get to actually speak and, and hunt down, you know, these people who are doing this graffiti world and the graffiti world and like this elusive population and and look at their work and have these conversations like that's really fun. and and. and maybe go to other countries or speak to people in different countries like that's really cool research and so that's why I like to really highlight these kind of this kind of work because it really um, exemplifies what it can be right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. speaking of research oh my goodness what she said about you know gaining access and like building that trust it really resonated mm-hmm. with me so I mentioned a past project that I had but even just this past fall You know, when I was speaking with one of the administrators at one of the schools that I was going into, you know, I could tell from the conversation she was so skeptical of me. And, you know, I just kind of had to put it out there. I was like, I I actually understand it isn't the first time, you know, that I've tried to gain access uh, in terms of like doing qualitative research. It might take you months to, you know, feel comfortable with me or to, you know, see what I'm about. And I'm I'm okay with that. Like, I, that's a part of the process. I'll be here all year. So, you know, you have plenty of time. But like, 
you know, letting people know that it is okay to feel me out. It is okay to not trust me right up front. And that's completely a part of the process. So that kind of resonated with me as I um, continue to collect data for my dissertation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's important for people who are looking to do this kind of research is to not always feel that like, don't be discouraged. Kind of, You know, when I was doing, you kind of go in there with the expectation that you're not going to be trusted. That's the way I think you should go into it. Um, And I think sometimes people go in there, they think like, oh, they're going to trust me and I'm going to do all this great work and they're just going to let me in. And they might get disappointed or discouraged, you know, when people are like, nah, you know, I don't know how I feel about that or, or may just say a complete no and give you no access at all. Um, But I think it's like about, being sensitive and understanding like the populations you're trying to do research on and what's at stake for them, you know, Mm -hmm. and why they might be hesitant or reluctant to letting you in um, and being okay with that or just, you know, acknowledging it like you did from jump or like others do like, Hey, you know, I understand that you may not trust me, but I'm here and I, you know, I'm keeping your, your, your best interest at heart. You know, I'm not trying to do anything that damages you. And when you're ready to let me in, you know, I'll be here. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that may even speed up the process. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so, too, because like like uh, Jessica said, it's about transparency. And like you mm-hmm. said, like, don't get discouraged. And if you are a, a graduate student out there and you're thinking about doing some ethnographic or qualitative research, build this into your process, like build that extra time in, because it's very rarely will it be, you know, I want to access this community and they're going to say, yeah, right off the bat. It very rarely happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's very true. Yeah. Especially with some of my work, work, especially working in the courts and the criminal justice system, you know, um, you get into them courts, man, you know, especially people like lawyers and judges, woo, you know, they are, mm-hmm. <laughs> they are all about like being very careful and meticulous about what information they put out there um, because, you know, they're public servants in a way, you know, and what everything they do is public. So they're very careful and just in that, that career, that profession, they're just always careful of how they operate. Um, so, yeah, so that was a great conversation and, and we appreciate just coming on, you know, Graffiti Girls. Definitely go check out the book, check out her work, support. Also check out the work that she's doing outside of the, her original research with graffiti um, and her work with, in, in Puerto Rico and, and feminism out there and activism. Um, you know, I think that's very important because as far, especially when the light of happened with the hurricane and how unresponsive our government has been to them. And it seemed to have uh, sparked this, not just interest, but activism within Puerto Rico from people inside and outside of going in and making sure that they help rebuild these communities and also kind of rebuild it in the fashion that they want it to be in. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was great that people like Jess and others are cognizant of that and not only cognizant of being active and suddenly one shirt at a time and one canvas bag at a time to support. And I think that's something we all can uh, uh, take heed to and, and and do with certain things that we all feel that are important to us. You know, sometimes it doesn't have to be thousands of dollars and trying to raise, you know, just a little bit at a time and chipping away and doing all you can in the position you are, I think means a lot as well and can be very impactful mm-hmm. in the long term. Um, but other than that, as always, you know, continue to follow us on social media at BHD Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Reach out to us at bhdpodcast at gmail.com. If you have ideas or topics, or if you would like to be a guest on our podcast, um, keep up with our latest content at www.blackandhighlydangerous.com. Continue to rate and review us on iTunes. That really helps us out a lot. And then share us with your friends, share us with your family, and share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. Thank you.
If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.